Hello, and welcome to the Thinking Elixir podcast. My name is Mark Erickson. I'm Cade Ward. And I'm David Bernheisel. Let's jump into the news. First up, David, you've been working on a project for some time, and I wanted to make sure people in the community were aware of this. It's safe ecto migrations, right? And I know from myself, my own personal experience, where I have made the mistake of writing a, a database migration that worked perfectly fine on my machine. And when I deploy it to production, the whole production system kind of locks up because I hadn't thought through the database locks and what was going to be happening to the data. So other Elixir processes were just kind of locked waiting for the database to be available again. And this guide would have prevented that if it had existed at the time and I had read it. So I want to make sure <laughs> you out there, uh, you dear listener, are aware that this resource exists. So David, maybe you can share a little bit about what people will find in this. Yeah, it's called Safe Ecto Migrations, and Fly is publishing this, so you'll find it at fly.io slash phoenix dash files. You'll find uh, the whole guide there. We'll also have a link in the show notes. And what you're going to find there is a four-part series. First, it, it dives into how an Ecto migration works and how it translates into SQL. There's lots of options that are available inside of a, of a migration. For example, how to turn off locks and which locks are, are there. Those locks could matter depending on what you're trying to do in the database. For example, if you're trying to create an index, you probably want to do that concurrently in the database if your database allows for that. And if you want to do it concurrently, you have to turn off the locks. I say locks, I really mean like database transactions. So you really can't do it inside of a database transaction there. That's like one part. There's another part that's like a bunch of recipes. Like what you said, Mark, is when you you deployed it to production, it, it locked up all of your processes because they were waiting on the database. We go through a lot of recipes on how to do pretty common operations safely, so that way you avoid those kinds of locks. A lot of that is inspired by Strong Migrations, which is a gem out of um, out of the Ruby community. So not a lot of this stuff is like really new information. I think this is generally out there already, but I hadn't seen a lot of it applied to like a Ecto specifically, right? So you'd have to read like the active record migrations and, and kind of translate that in your head to, to Ecto. So we've done that now. So that's all in Ecto now. But then there's also, and, and this is the part that I thought was interesting. It ends on backfilling data. Because that's another like really common thing to do in production systems. And there's, there's safe ways to do that. There's reliable ways to do that. And there's unreliable ways to do that. And so I, I go through uh, at least two examples of how to backfill data safely. And safely means in batches, throttled, resilient. So that way some weird data doesn't trip you up and you have to like rerun the whole thing again as much. I tend to see recipes on how to do common like database schema changes, but I didn't see a lot of examples out there about how to do data migrations. I'm sure we could talk a whole lot more, a whole episode's worth about data migrations and how that should be in an ideal world. You know, we're kind of mixing two worlds here, schema changes with like data operations. But I feel like this guy presents like a good starting point to making uh, safe changes in, in, a, in a big system. That's the guide in the nutshell, and it's four parts, anatomy of an active migration, the recipes, how to run those migrations in a production system. So now you've got it up on, on fly.io, for example. How do you run those things? How do you get your mix release to, to see the status of what's already out there? Uh, and then finally, the, the backfilling of the data. That's what the guide's about. Yeah, that's pretty cool. I remember back when I started my first gig in Elixir, it was actually the first framework that came with official... Uh, migrations. And so I didn't know a lot of this stuff. And and one of my colleagues 
did Ruby and Rails back on the day. And so he was teaching me the the strong migrations ways and having to translate from active record to ecto and learn all these hard lessons before we learned them in production, right? And so <laughs> yeah. that's good stuff. And that makes it even harder, like in Cade, in your case, where you weren't already proficient in Rails. So you're kind of having to understand what was going on in the Rails thing without fully understanding Rails. So like, it's great to have a resource like this for people who are coming to Elixir, either new or from other languages where they didn't go through Rails and, and some of the other resources that were available. So the guide's out and it's published, which is awesome. The recipes are on the guide as well, uh, published there, but they're also in a Git repository hosted on, on Fly Apps on GitHub. The recipes are, are meant to be a community resource. So like, I'm not going to be forever, you know, that person that, that the authoritative knowledge of all the database systems out there. So I'm really looking forward to all the contributions that the rest of the community can make. But the contributions that I made was by expanding upon like why something is a bad idea and like alternatives to like, it's not just one way to do it. You know, well, there's, there's maybe two options now. Hopefully this will be a good resource. And there's prior art out there. You know, I started writing this back in the summer. It took me a long time to write this. I think I even mentioned it in the news a while back ago. Finally got it published. So thanks to Fly.io for uh, helping publish that. And the artwork, by the way, is phenomenal. If you're going to skip the, the words, because there's a lot of words, you, you should at least go, go look at the art. <laughs> Next up, we just wanted to mention that Erlang 25 is documenting all the built-in types. So... What that means is that if you're big into specs and you were looking at these built-in Erlang types previously, they were maybe a little hard to come by. They're now officially documented and you'll be able to kind of see what they look like and it'll be easier to use them. At least that's my understanding. So the Erlang Ecosystem Foundation just reached a great milestone. They have now reached the milestone of a thousand members. That's that's great. That's a thousand folks that really care about you know the Erlang ecosystem, which includes Elixir, you know, uh, and and looking for ways to participate and how to like advance the uh, you know the community. Uh, that's that's great. So congratulations to the Erlang Ecosystem Foundation. This is uh, this is great news. Quinn Wilton gave a keynote presentation at Codebeam America, and the video is now online, and it was titled "100 Years in Erlang." So we've got a link to where you can find that online for the video and also a link to the slides. Now, obviously, Erlang hasn't been around for 100 years, but Quinn starts back with the understanding of the history of the telephony because telephony shaped so much of how Erlang came to be and the ideas and concepts behind it, where supervision trees came from, where some of the original ideas evolved from. So it's a very interesting presentation to give deeper context and appreciation for the topic. You might want to check that out. I'll highlight one point out of that, which I thought was really interesting, was back in the early telephone days, there was actually a, a huge distrust of the system. And they would start like basically conspiracy theorying about how the system was against them. Like, for example, like I can't get my phone call to go through, or it just seems to be down when I need it the most, that kind of stuff. So I'm going to just bring that forward a, a hundred years now and say that I, that feeling hasn't gone a hundred percent away, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I think that that is a lot of the trust that the uh, OTP platform, I guess I pulled an ATM machine error there, but the OT platform helps the, you know, the trust of your, your system actually working when it should be. 
that was an interesting point that I pulled away. And Quinn does a fantastic job, so I highly recommend uh, checking that out. All right, next up, uh, winners of the Spawn Fest was announced. I'm going to list a couple here. There's a lot of categories, but I'm just going to list the first place winners. We've mentioned them before, and I picked we picked out a couple in an earlier episode. But here are the winners. The overall winner was the EEP 49ers. If you're a football fan, sorry, this isn't actually about football at all. <laughs> this is about a proposal, EEP 49, and this is a, an implementation of it. And I won't go into what EEP 49 means, but I'll give you an example of what they're trying to do. So if you do a begin and then end, you're going to catch something maybe that kind of raises a failure or doesn't do something the way you want it to. This adjusts the way that that acts. And so you can do inside of a begin clause, do a bunch of expressions or match expressions. And if any of those match expressions fail, you can catch those. It's kind of like a, a with statement almost, right? It's like your happy path is still at the top. And then you have your captures below it for anything that falls out of that. So it's like begin, and then you got your your expressions in the in the in the block there, and then you have a cond that kind of acts like the catch out of that. Anyway, you'll have to see it to check it out. But I think that could really simplify or really you know help refactoring uh, and put the happy path up on top, kind of like what With did. So that's that's the overall winner. So you got to go check that out. There's a maintainability winner, which is called the E. Arango DB. It's a driver, I think. I'm not sure what it is. It, it, it is a way to easily communicate with the Arango DB. Let me put it that way. And the Arango DB is a kind of a crazy database with a lot of different models in it. Anyway, it's it looks really cool. And then finally, the innovation winner, which is Beam Emoji. The readme is is like entirely in emojis. A little hard to read. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of hard to tell what this is doing, but looks fun. <laughs> So uh, innovation winner right there. <laughs> Innovative. <laughs> Commit is emoji. All the docs are emoji. So I think I'll get it eventually. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, congratulations, SpawnFest winners. That was really exciting stuff. I feel like every time this happens, there's some really good stuff that comes out the other end. The end of year holidays approaching. There's a tradition called the Advent of Code, which was inspired by the Advent calendars to count down to Christmas. And if you haven't done this before, it's just there's a new puzzle that comes out every day at midnight in some time zone that I don't know off the top of my head. You do the first part, you get a star, and then they completely change everything on you and say, ah, oh, just kidding, what if this happens? And you do the second part, and then, they, and then you get a gold star, right? So you get a silver star for the first one, a gold star for the second one. And anyways, you're trying to collect all the stars up until Christmas, and over time it makes a, a cute little image in Unicode or something, I don't know. It's pretty fun, but this year, Jose Valim announced that he will be going back to streaming, and he will use Twitch while he uses Elixir to solve the advent of code puzzles. And he said he's going to be using Livebook, too. I've actually been seeing some people chatter on Twitter about this, and one guy even said something along the lines of, he watched it in 2018, and something you don't want to miss, it's amazing, so what better opportunity to learn from the creator of Elixir himself, doing little funny puzzles on, like constructs of elixir and best ways of doing things and i know i watched a few of them last time and he kind of talks about performance and you know why you might stream in this situation so they're very very informative and moving into our section on library updates credo 1.6 was released i have a link to the change log in the show notes but there were a number of fixes and improvements 
There are new checks that were added, some were improved, but the big improvement is there's a new first run mode, which is mix credo dash dash first dash run. And it offers a couple suggestions on how to introduce credo to your workflow or your CI. And all of the suggestions are project specific. Another improvement is a new diff option, which is mix credo diff. And it's often used when you're developing on a branch and then comparing that branch to a base branch. So that makes it easier to just do the credo checks on the new code going in so you don't have to have a completely clean full project before you can start using credo. Because you know if you're bringing credo late into a project, you're going to have a lot of warnings and cruft left over that you'll get around to eventually, but you want your new stuff going in to be clean. And so it's a great way to do that. Some cool new features to check out there. In live book world, Jonathan has uh, created a PR in Kino. Kino is a library uh, used by Livebook to render rich and interactive output directly from your Elixir code. And this PR adds controls into Livebook. Now, what does that mean? Imagine Pong and two players playing Pong in Livebook. Like, what the heck? <laughs> That's kind of what this is doing. So he has a demonstration. He's got a, a little a movie in the, in the GitHub PR. You got to go check it out. So he creates two live book instances, clusters them together, and then plays Pong through those two instances of, of live book. <laughs> All right, this, this guy is on fire. So that's great. You're not going to see Jupyter Notebooks doing something like that. <laughs> <laughs> that's next level stuff. Speaking of, you know, we didn't actually list this, but I, I did see like uh, something called iElixir, which was about uh, implementing the Jupyter Notebook kernel in Elixir. I think I got that right. So if you are really into Jupiter, but you still want to like hold on to that a little bit or, or live book or something doesn't quite fit your needs yet, and you still want to check out Elixir, then iElixir might be something to check out. Next up, Xdoc 0.26.0 is out. A couple of features we wanted to note. They've added a button to copy code snippets, consolidated settings under a nice little settings modal, included some translate equals no around modules and signatures to improve the user experience when using translation tools. And then they added a bunch of documentation on some tools like mermaid graphs and such. Cool improvements. It's always getting better. I really like XDoc and how clean and good and usable it is. We saw recently there was some information on how to use mermaid graphics and workflow in XDoc. And so it's just really nice to have that be an official part of the project and the docs were updated. Definitely check that out. And last... Open Web version 2.8.0 is out along with the Pro. And with this release, they tried something new and created a walkthrough video demonstrating the new features so you can visually see it and understand what it is they're talking about. It includes a bunch of performance improvements, but a lot of UI improvements on working with the job lists. They become sortable and everything. So check that out as well. And that's it for the news. Fly.io supports this podcast by providing editing services. Beyond being great for supporting us, they are a great place to host your next Elixir app. Check them out at fly.io. Today, we're being joined by our special guest, Dave Lucia. Dave, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. So thanks for joining us on the show. And uh, I thought it'd be really interesting to talk to you about well, a couple of things. First of all, I know at ElixirConf, you had just given a talk about Surface, about bridging the gap with Surface and, and JavaScript, I think. Really nice presentation. Great job with that, by the way. It's also on YouTube at this point with uh, ElixirConf. I was there 
pseudo live on on the internet uh, as it was being streamed. But you know, given that you just talked about Surface at ElixirConf, I feel like there's a lot of folks that could just go find that YouTube video and and hear your talk about it. So instead of like rehashing that, I thought it might be interesting to talk about some other things that you and your company does and some other more mm, software architectural things. And the two things that came to mind was your usage of RabbitMQ and Commanded. And so without diving into that quite yet, I want to learn a little bit more about you and you know what what kind of things do you do? What kind of problems are you solving at work? And well, anyway, just let us learn about you. Who are you? I should start by saying thank you so much for, for having me on the show. I've been listening for a while. I, I listen to the show every week while, while I'm at the gym. So a little bit about me. I am a engineer at a company called SimpleBet. Been there for about three years, primarily doing Elixir. There was a time when I was doing some Rust over there too. Before that, I started out my Elixir professional career at a online magazine called theoutline.com. We launched that in 2016. That was coming off of a a five-year-long career at Bloomberg, which was my first job out of college. And that was more financial trading systems and C, C++, and Fortran, uh, and then working on the launch of Bloomberg Business in 2014, which was my first jump into web technology, single-page apps, JavaScript, all that fun stuff. So yeah, you've you've been in the industry for quite a while, then you've seen it kind of evolve and probably learned a lot of a lot of lessons about what not to do too, right? Back in my first year at Bloomberg, uh, one of the things I did that was probably my best career lesson was taking down all of uh, Bloomberg uh, Treebook futures for for a Friday afternoon when I deployed <laughs> a new service. Uh, everything looked great all week. It was the the service that actually painted the numbers onto the screen as prices were changing. Oh boy. <laughs> and I had migrated from one internal framework to another internal framework and the performance characteristics of that changed between frameworks. Didn't really know about load testing as a concept or capacity planning or any of those sorts of things. Farm numbers come out on Friday, boom, everything, all the trader screens go black. Uh, <laughs> the, the product team is like screaming at my boss. My boss is like kind of shielding me from it. So very, uh, very good early learning experience on what not to do. Wow. <laughs> okay. All right. So, so how long then uh, have you been using Elixir? How, how veteran are you now uh, at this point? Back when I was working on Bloomberg.com, one of my managers, uh, Pavan Kolkarni, he had told me about Elixir. I was kind of getting into like functional programming at the time with Elm and I was interested in Haskell. And he's like, oh, this language Elixir is really cool. Maybe we could build like an image resizing service in it. Didn't end up doing that, but did get interested, built some Slack bots. This is like 2015. At some point I was like, man, I just want to do Elixir. And I was trying to push it at my day job and the interest wasn't there to invest in this like nascent technology. And I ended up getting word from Josh Topolsky, who was the head of digital media at Bloomberg.com at the time. He had left Bloomberg. Uh, He was going to start his own thing at the outline. And he tweeted something that he was looking for Elixir developers. And I had worked with him on Bloomberg.com. So I was like, okay, I know Josh. He's an interesting guy, founder of The Verge. He's like Jimmy Fallon's tech correspondent. Uh, So really interesting guy. And he's looking for Elixir. I'm like, this is perfect. Yeah. Wow. Ended up reaching out to him and talking to 
uh, the CTO, Ivar Vong, who is now a very close friend of mine, and left Bloomberg to, to do Elixir full-time back in 2016. Basically joined, and we had like a three-month sprint to, to launch the website. We built a content management system and an online magazine that served millions of users a month, all in Elixir, all from the ground up. I got to work with Chris McCord for a brief stint with, with Dockyard and all that kind of fun stuff. So very good introduction to Elixir. It's like like ideal. I noticed that those were a lot of names that I typically associate with, uh, with well, New York. That all sounds very New York to me. And <laughs> like, I, I don't know Joshua Jabolski, but I know I know that like Bloomberg is, you know, a, a New York centric kind of uh, publication. A, a lot of publications are actually very New York centric. I knew of Joshua Topolsky because I remember when The Verge launched, I was reading in Gadget at that point, and I think The Verge had like a, a better video production side and, and, and lengthier editorials on like in-depth stuff, and I just appreciated that. So anyway, it's kind of kind of interesting to, to to hear that you are also like closer to all that uh, all that movement. So taking a break from from work for a second, you have a kiddo, and and he's he's crawling now, right? Is that turning your life upside down? I do, baby Owen. He is eight months old. Owen Cyrus Lucia is his name. And yeah, he just started crawling about a month ago. Actually, it was the morning I was giving my talk at Elixir Conf. I get a video <laughs> message from my mother-in-law of Owen crawling. And I'm like, really, buddy? I had to do it when I left. <laughs> <laughs> Owen being born has been great. Being a parent has been really fun. It's really exciting to, to watch him, him grow and all of the funny things that babies do. And to miss to miss out on that, I, you know, I I don't think I missed out on on my kiddo. But you know, like when you think of those first moments, Mark, maybe maybe you can chime in too. Like when you yeah, when you have those first moments with your children, is it always like this is definitively the first time you said a word? No, I don't think it's actually that. It's like no, they've been working at it for quite a while, but it just didn't really sound like anything. Was Owen like kind of standing up a little bit before or was he doing other like movements thing or was he boot scooting? He was doing, um, I, I call it like, he's like ready to like launch. He's like charging <laughs> up like on all fours and kind of like rocking back and forth. Yeah. I, like do the countdown. He, he hasn't like shot up into the air yet, but maybe he will soon. <laughs> uh, so we knew it was coming and uh, we actually, Marissa and I, my wife, we, we called it. We're like, you're going to leave. You're going to go to Austin. He's going to start crawling. And he did. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So back when you're talking about starting up a CMS here, I thought that was pretty interesting. When I hear about CMS systems, I don't really associate them with functional languages like Elixir. And especially with, you know, with your primary users probably just wanting to publish content. And there's usually mature platforms that are designed to do that already. WordPress comes to mind. And I'm sure that there's others like Ghost. If you don't mind sharing, like how did Elixir become part of the decision for building a CMS? Really good question. One that I touch on a little bit in a blog post I wrote uh, a few years back called Two Years of Elixir at the Outline. As I mentioned, I joined the Outline because the CTO was looking for people who wanted to write Elixir. So he had sort of predetermined that that was the path he wanted to take. And that was from experience that Ivar was working at the Marshall Project, where I believe he was director of engineering or some role to that effect. I was doing a lot of Ruby on Rails. And he 
you know, was trying to push Ruby a little bit, the classic story of concurrency and came across Elixir, thought it was like a bit of the holy grail for, for what he was hoping to do. So I, yeah, I think that was an early choice, but what ended up happening, if you go to the outline, which by the way is now uh, a bit of a dead website, unfortunately, it got acquired by uh, Bustle Digital Group. I think it was in 2019. And then they decided to shut it down about a year later. But one of the hallmarks of the outline is that it had a very visually expressive storytelling experience where you would come into an article or a feature story and there'd be this like beautiful piece of art and all these stylistic choices, color combinations and whatnot that were all customizable by the editor who was curating the story onto the website. So we had a team of staff writers as well as staff editors and then a ton of, of freelance writers. They would write a story and then they'd be able to curate content on the post, change the way that the look and feel of the story to match like kind of the mood. And that was just something that we didn't want to hack into WordPress. We wanted to build that technology so that we could expand it and take it in any direction that we wanted to. And Elixir ended up being a great choice for that. The content management system itself was really awesome in Elixir because every single keystroke that you made while you were typing up the story, we had an iframe next to it that would live re-render it. It would just re-render the whole page in an iframe. And that's something that like would take a lot of effort if you're doing it all in React or, or whatever technology. But because the renders were like microseconds, super easy to to get like a really great experience like that with almost no effort. So you went from Bloomberg, you know, to the outline. Now you're at SimpleBet. Tell us about SimpleBet. Before I tell you about SimpleBet, I want to tell you why I even went to SimpleBet in the first place. At the time, our, our former CTO was posting on the Elixir Slack looking for experienced Elixir developers. At that time, I'd been doing Elixir professionally for about two and a half years and was also looking for developers interested in Rust. And Rust is something that I had you know, kind of had some vague interest in because I had been working in C++ a while back and always liked kind of like low-level systems programming. So I said, this sounds like a really interesting opportunity. Things at the outline were sort of, they were phasing out a little bit. So I was like, this sounds like a really interesting opportunity. It's a sports betting website or a sports betting product, something I don't really know anything about. And I kind of just took the chance and I dove in, headquartered in New York. My first experience at SimpleBet was combining Rust and an Elixir and writing machine learning models. I actually ended up writing a machine learning framework in Rust and then deploying it as a NIF in Elixir. I have a whole conference talk about why that was a terrible idea and why we don't do that anymore. <laughs> uh, you can look at my CodeBeam SF 2020 talk for that, but really interesting experience. So, okay, what does is, what is SimpleBet do? So SimpleBet is a sports betting or sports technology company, and we're trying to make every moment a sporting match a bettable opportunity. Specifically, what that means is like as you're watching the game, let's say it's a, a football game, you're watching uh, the Jets being destroyed by the Patriots or something near and dear to my heart. <laughs> so as the game is progressing, we create markets, and these markets are things like betting on every single play or betting on every single drive. So you could bet that the play is going to be a pass play and that the outcome of a drive is going to be a turnover because it's the Jets. <laughs> or for baseball, you could bet on, you know, is this pitch going to result in 
a ball or a strike, or is it going to be in play? Things like how many pitches are going to be in this current at bat? Is this batter going to hit a home run or a single, double, triple? This sounds like microtransactions, but in sports betting. Pretty much, yeah. Yeah, okay. All right. What I'm totally getting from that is it is very real time. Very real time. It's not like you're betting on the outcome of the Super Bowl that's going to be played in two months from now kind of a thing. Yeah, this one bracket. Yeah. This is like, yeah, you're like talking about like, it's as you're watching it live, so I assume it's got a mobile device. Is that how you're probably interacting with it? And it's very real time. That's right. And maybe let me take a step back and say specifically what we do. So we create markets while the game is happening. We say, here's a market that is bet on. Here's all the selections, the things you could bet on. Here's the probabilities of all of those outcomes. And we sell that as a data feed to our customers. Our customers are other businesses in either media or uh, a sports book. Biggest customer right now is DraftKings. So we, we sell those markets to them as a data product. They consume that data product and then they offer our markets on their sports book. And so it, it's a little bit separate from like us taking bets. We sort of do that. We have some, some mobile games. We launched one with FanDuel about a year ago. It was called FanDuel Play Action. It's basically our markets in a UI that we built, but you know, stylized with all of the FanDuel colors and logos and whatnot. So we do a little bit of everything, but our main product is that data product. Interesting. So you're having to real time, very quickly come up with the probabilities of these different outcomes and then put that package that up into something that can be picked up by a betting market. Is that right? I guess the way I like to describe it is we have for any given sport, 10 plus years of historical data, everything from the weather to, you know, did the pitcher eat breakfast that morning? (laughs) And then we also have real-time data sources. So those real-time data sources are incident feeds that are like, okay, players are lining up, the ball was snapped, it's a rush, play is over, here's the down to distance. We get that incremental information. And so we combine that real-time information, run it through our machine learning models, which have been trained on all of this historical data. Out the other end comes a probability distribution. We then slice up that probability distribution, send that out as probabilities in those selections, and boom, that goes uh, out to DraftKings through our AMQP feed and to their customers. Perfect. Because I can, I think this will lead us into our, our, our real meaty subjects here, which is about command it is, is what? How, and how to use it. First off, RabbitMQ is a message broker, a event bus, a whatever you want to call it. It is a way to push events and to distribute them uh, through some sort of topology to other consumers. AMQP is a protocol that you could talk to RabbitMQ through, uh, and it's a standard. So uh, many languages have client libraries that you can read and write to to RabbitMQ through AMQP. So that's RabbitMQ. We'll hold that off for a second. What is Commanded? So we use Commanded at SimpleBet. We've been using it, I think, going on two years here. At one time, Ben Smith, the creator of Commanded, is like, oh, you might be the biggest user of commanded. And every single time I, I find another company that uses commanded, they think that they're the biggest users of commanded. So I think uh, Ben Smith is doing his uh, viral marketing really well or guerrilla marketing. <laughs> <laughs> so what is commanded? So commanded is a CQRS system. Man, let's see if we could get this one right. Command query responsibility segregation. Yeah, nailed it. That's it. I, I wrote that one down. Yeah. 
<laughs> okay. All right. Good. My memory is working. Okay. Basically, what that is, it's loosely related to event sourcing. Don't ask me what the difference is because I always forget. A framework maybe is an overloaded word, but it's a way of structuring your application such that you have a read model and a write model. So basically, you can optimize the way that you write uh, to your your event store and read out from those events, and you can optimize reading and writing independently. And this is typically used for when you know, you've got really complex business logic or, or a really complex, maybe multiple domains that you're working with. And you want to have a really simple way of structuring your application and separating out the business logic so that you could really separate those writes and those reads. And to just throw more complication into that, so there's CQRS, which is what you just helped define. There's also CRDTs. C- oh, man. Okay, CRDTs. Yeah, we're talking about event sourcing, and, and I feel like CRDTs is also in that mixture. So I think it's conflict-free replicated data types. That's it. Yes, two for two. In the case that there are a lot of events happening, which I assume is happening for, for you guys maybe multiple producers of these events and two of these events happen to be the same thing, but now you have two of them being emitted and they're different. And CRDTs is the algorithm that can be applied on top of that to make these events conflict free. So that the question is which one of these will win. Does commanded have anything to do with that or is, are these separated concepts somehow? They are separated Actually, if we go back to the outline, uh, a really good use of CRDTs is when you have some source of truth coming from multiple sources and you don't know the ordering of it. You want to have like you know a single picture of what is the end state. So CRDTs are a way of helping you have an eventually consistent way of having that picture of what is the state. So this is really good for things like collaborative editing where maybe multiple writers are coming in and they're producing data and you want to have like the same document produced on everyone's screen. Actually, when we were working with Chris McCord at, at Dockyard, uh, something he helped us add was a CRDT-based editor to the outline, which was really cool. <laughs> nice. <laughs> okay, so coming back to Commanded though, do CRDTs and Commanded fit? I suppose they can, but... Probably for our use case, eventual consistency is not something that really works well for us since eventual consistency sort of implies that you're waiting or that it can come out of order. And most of the time we have you know, some inbound information and we need to send an update immediately. So that time to, to resolve that consistency is not there. So we have a bit more of a strongly consistent type application that has maybe different constraints than collaborative editor. All right. So thank you for untangling that for me. So CQRS, CRDT, two different things. Got it. Then hearing you explain that now makes me think of a traditional job system though. I know that it might be more common for applications to have a, a job processing program, but a job processing program like EXQ or Sidekick or all those, those things out there, order doesn't really matter. Maybe order matters here. Yeah. Order certainly matters. Okay. Because depending on the order, you might need to take a completely different action. For example, let's say that we you know, get in an event that the play started, great. Then we find out that the play is over before we find out if it's a rush or a pass. Well, we're going to maybe 
close the market or, or stop betting on it or something because we need to action on that right now. Then we find out that it's a rush. Well, it's too late for that information. So we kind of ignore it. Or maybe we update something, but we don't you know, change the state of the market. So that's where that ordering is very important. And the way that Commanded handles this. So you have basically a way of introducing state into the system. And this is through a command. So the command is, hey, do this action. For us, it would be like, hey, there was something that happened on the feed. Maybe the play started. So we dispatch a play started command. That then goes and is routed inside of the commanded application. That command is going to get picked up by an aggregate. An aggregate is kind of what it sounds like. It is something that has aggregated state. You can think of it as a reducer over a number of events. Mm -hmm. So command comes in. The aggregate or the command handler is going to decide which events that should be emitted as a result of this command. Great, we haven't updated any state yet, but we emit these events. The aggregate then applies the events. So now it's updating its state, reducing over it, and those events get emitted and can be picked up by event handlers, process managers, basically ways in which you can coordinate state, persist it elsewhere, what have you. So a common pattern would be, okay, I've got a command, it comes in, emits events. If you have an event handler, a very specific type of event handler called a projector. And the projector's job is taking events and writing them to the database, basically enabling your read model, which is the place where I'm going to directly coordinate talking to the database to serve some UI or uh, for lookup later for some reason. This is where the command read and write separation comes into play. But coming back to ordering, so once I've emitted those events, those are getting persisted into the event store. And anything that is reading from the event store is getting those events streamed from the event store. And one of the key things about the event store is that it ensures that ordering, that whatever is getting those events is processing them in a particular order so that you can have consistency guarantees any of those uh, restrictions or constraints that you're wanting to add to your application in order to make it work correctly. So when you're describing all these commands that are coming through, is that where the commands are being read out of like a RabbitMQ stream? Is that where those are coming out? Inbound, we're getting data from a third party. So that's going to come over a raw TCP socket with maybe some XML. Oh, yeah. <laughs> something that, you know, 15, 20 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. The dirty stuff. So we get that inbound. I won't go into too much detail, but it gets dispatched as a command. So we kind of take the raw data, massage it a little bit, turn it into a, a domain specific structure, dispatch it. In order to get it to our customers, we have a AMQP feed. And this AMQP feed is a RabbitMQ instance deployed in high availability. And we let our customers connect to that. They have a separate RabbitMQ topology they connect to. And when we're pushing out messages, when we're publishing them, they get fanned out and they go to each of our customers. That makes sense. So RabbitMQ, a lot of people don't realize that it's actually written in Erlang. So it's just a fun thing to be aware of. Because like, yeah, it's it's been around for a long time. It's a totally solid queue. Has you, have you guys had a good experience using RabbitMQ as opposed to any other queues that you may have considered? Yeah, we, we've had experience working with Kafka. We had originally uh, had chosen it as the way to interface between us and our customers. And this was an early uh, choice that we had made. 
kind of not really knowing the design constraints or you know, the system constraints of Kafka, only that we knew we needed a way to deliver data to our customer. Kafka seems like this, you know, modern approach to doing so from maybe a 30,000 foot perspective. So as we began working with Kafka, producing messages and, you know, in the early days when we, you know, had some customers that we were trying to work with, but hadn't integrated with them, we started to experience a number of different problems or just, you know, ways in which we wanted to use Kafka that maybe weren't the perfect fit. Some of these things are like, you know, having to choose really strict schemas through Avro in order to encode data and have it be received by our customers in a well-structured way. I don't think there's actually anything particularly wrong with, with that approach, but when you're evolving your data model very quickly, it can slow you down. And in the early days, that was probably a, a premature optimization for us. Another thing around Kafka, when you're dealing with company to company, is things like authentication, what's your partition model, how do you decide like the granularity of the topic, what, what goes on the topic. For us in sports, is it like at a match level or a market level? And we found that all of these decisions were kind of things that our customers really should be deciding. And we didn't want to constrain that flexibility. So like if our customers want, you know, a queue that has every single market message that we might publish onto it, great, they can do that. If they want a queue that's just when markets get created for any sport or for just baseball, great, they could do that. And with AMQP and RabbitMQ, there's this really nice flexibility where um, there's different types of exchanges, which are places where markets can be produced and consumed. We can publish messages with headers and then queues can be bound onto that exchange in different ways in which the customers can decide how data gets routed to them. And this is a really powerful inversion of control that puts the onus on the customer to get the data that they need rather than the data that we kind of predetermined they might want. I hadn't really considered using RabbitMQ as a way to dispatch data to my external clients, right? Lots of times it's, you kind of think of it as being an internal message queue between microservices or something like that. That's how I often hear it talked about. But using AMQP, where you have a defined protocol, it lets your customers connect up using a Ruby client, a Java client, a C-sharp client, or whatever it is they want to use to subscribe to those messages. How has that been received by your customers? Is that something they have commented on? Yes. In fact, one of the other data providers in the industry, they also offer an AMQP interface. So common feedback that we've gotten in the industry is, oh yeah, this is really familiar. It's easy. I can get Java Spring Boot going and, and connect to RabbitMQ and no problem. So it, it's been actually a really great success story for us in terms of ease of integration. Whereas the same success story really wasn't there for Kafka because I don't think that people are really using Kafka in that way. It, it's again, more of that internal microservices dispatching events internally. And something I should mention is that we also do use RabbitMQ to communicate between microservices even within the same microservice extensively. And it's become uh, a really important and wonderful part of our infrastructure. I'm imagining the kind of situation that I might have where you would say, oh, commanded using the CQRS pattern is a really good solution to help you solve that. And is there anything in particular that stands out in your mind like, oh, this is a common thing you would see and 
and know to look for this commanded as a good solution for that? So maybe we could say what it might not be a good fit for, which is like a simple CRUD app. You've got pretty straightforward business logic. You can do it through a database. Just go with Postgres and your standard Phoenix app. If you're writing Elixir, that's going to be a great fit. Once things start to get more complicated and your business logic you know, maybe needs to be consumed by multiple different domains, or you need a way to do you know, transactions or some sort of complicated sequence of event processing in a way that is performance critical or that just requires a lot of care. CQRS is going to give you a structure that you could follow. Maybe not all of the tools for making it you know, super performant or anything like that, but mostly a way to structure the logic of your application in a way where those writes and those reads are completely independent. And that lets you grow your application in a way that can kind of wrangle in that complexity. We had gone with more of a like Elixir, you know, gen server native type approach to this first. I think we're on like iteration four or five of how we've structured this app. And shout out to former SimpleBet engineer, Joseph Lozano, who had the idea of let's try out CQRS for, for our problem domain. Um, and it ended up being a great fit. We've been, like I said, using Commanded for two years now. I myself had become a contributor of Commanded, adding telemetry events. And I even have a little open telemetry tracing library that picks up those events and converts them into spans. Oh, nice. A lot of cool stuff that you could do with Commanded. I don't have like a perfect example of like, this is when you should use it. But if you're having a really hard time structuring your business logic, because there's you know so much that goes into it and so many different consumers... Check out CQRS, read about domain-driven design. Uh, it might be the right fit for you. It sounds to me like a good case for that is I have something that's emitting a kind of an ongoing stream of events. And I might have a number of different things that need to consume that. And some of them will care about some of the events and some won't care about others. Is that a good idea? It's maybe less about the events themselves and more of like the state that you need to keep in order to make decisions. So like if you just have like a completely pure event processing pipeline or like an ETL type thing, probably not the right fit for commanded because you don't need all the latency that comes with that that write model and the aggregate. So it's really when you're aggregating the state over the events when it's time to maybe choose this type of pattern. That's what I was going to center in on next was was the aggregate part of it. So it's not so much, yeah, ETL, just take this one state, transform it, and then load it. It, which would imply overwriting, you know, any existing state. You want finer control over how to aggregate that data uh, for for every record. That's interesting. Really great insight. Thanks for sharing that. It sounds like RabbitMQ and Commanded are a really good combo for handling. I don't want to overuse the word, you know, event based architecture, but it sounds like if you have any kinds of data that you need to bring bring in in, in a perpetual kind of uh, way, and the you know all all the things that we just mentioned, aggregating that data over time, Commanded and RabbitMQ seem like a, a pretty good combo to help solve those problems. Really happy. Well, first that RabbitMQ is Erlang, so a l- little you know cousin technology there brother technology whatever what have you and then commanded is just a good way to like organize yourself the software architecture which i think is reacted to unfortunately right like i i feel like that is that is a soft spot for for a lot of engineers is like 
they just want to build something code throw throw code at it for a while and then and then they got us something that's up and working but then they have to re-engineer at some point and they they see the architecture emerge after the fact and i don't know how to solve that problem but commanded is that thing that can help you keep an architecture does that sound fair I think so. I think because of how it, it forces you to split up your domain into these domain-specific events and commands, it's giving you that structure and, and really that mental framework that allows you to split it up over time, as you're suggesting. What you haven't asked me is, what are the downsides of commanded and CQRS? <laughs> so maybe a few of the dragons that we've come across. So, so dragon number one, actually fixed now and commanded, in some regard, we were having a serious problem where we'd be emitting so many events across all of these different matches that we're processing concurrently. So concurrency in Elixir, great thing, right? Problem is that it's got to serialize through that event store, that thing that's ensuring the consistency that we talked about. And passing through the event store might take some locks on, on a row somewhere or, or some transaction, but somewhere in the event store, there is opportunity for things to get bottlenecked. And so we were producing so many events that things would get really slow in kind of a random way. We were able to solve that at least partially by separating out the commanded application. So we'll boot up a new one for every single match using a feature of commanded called dynamic uh, commanded applications. So this is a way of sharding that responsibility. And the interesting about it maybe is that when you boot up the commanded app, you also provision a new event store, which is just a new Postgres schema. And so everything that's happening in the database is completely lock independent from commanded instance to commanded instance, even though it's running in the same uh, Elixir node. The other dragon, and this is more of a CQRS at large thing, is that because you're serializing data into the event store and they're not necessarily structured as they would be in a Postgres database, maybe more analogous to a JSONB column. In fact, if you're using the default Ecto-backed event store, actually not Ecto-backed, but Postgres-backed event store, it is using JSONB columns. You have to have a way of migrating your data in a way where if you add a new column and you have some constraint on that column, that when you deploy a new version of your app, that the whole thing doesn't break. It's expecting a column to be there and an event that's on the previous version of the event store comes out. So that's a huge problem in event sourcing CQRS type systems. And one that's been a little bit challenging to solve, maybe just like a sneak peek at some solutions to that. But we're, we're starting to employ something called synthetic monitoring that allows us to have things running in the background all the time, a fake game happening in the background, and then use our observability tools like Lightstep to detect if there's problems before a real match is happening. So maybe a separate from commanded, but interesting way to to solve uh, problems like data migration, or at least be alerted of them. So synthetic monitoring, that sounds like a great tip that could be used in a lot of different situations, especially if you were reacting a lot to external data and things like uh, real-time events. We've overloaded the word events, <laughs> but like real-time, real-world things that you can run simulations of to see... Is this going to break my system? So I love that idea. Yeah, it's a very powerful pattern. One that we're still very new on, but we're hoping to get a lot of value out of. So Dave, we're about out of time. But before we let you go, I I, I got a, a, a hint that there might be some interesting news going on at your company that maybe you can share with us here. 
We've been moving more and more towards adopting Surface at SimpleBet. So this started with building up a, a new service and having spent a lot of time with Phoenix Live View and it being a great fit for all of our internal tools and then finding what Surface, the value that it adds on top, been a great adoption story internally. And so we've been uh, kind of transforming all of our internal tools as we redesign them over to Surface. And doing so, I've become quite friendly with the creator of Surface, Marla Sariva, uh, who's also the creator of Broadway and Elixir Sense and some other packages. My exciting news is that Marlis has uh, decided to come and work with us at SimpleBet, where he'll be working not just on the product, but continuing to improve Surface and Broadway and many other things, Phoenix LiveView itself. We're very excited to have Marlis join the team. I think by the time this airs, he will have announced uh, that he's, he's coming to join. That's cool. It's very exciting. Yeah. So are you guys using Broadway as well? We are not using Broadway. And there might be actually a few places where it could be a good fit. But that ETL type stuff that Broadway is typically a fit for, our data engineering team and their tool of choice is more of the Python stack. So um, we don't step on those toes too much with Broadway. <laughs> yeah, so that, that makes sense because you have like a lot where they're doing a lot of the model training and things like that using existing tools. Yeah. Maybe Elixir NX one day, but not today. <laughs> That's right. Yes, I will have to check in with you in a, in a year or so after NX has matured some more. And some more libraries have been built up around that. Before you go, though, what's next for you, for SimpleBet? Uh, you've been very active in the community. You've been presenting at things. So what's next? That's a good question. I've got a lot of open source work that I've put on the back burner for a while. So hoping to get to some PRs I've been wanting to make to Commanded, to Surface, some improvements to XDoc that I've been wanting to make. By the way, if you go to the Elixir documentation and you see the section on the left and you can see like all of the section headers in the sidebar, uh, that was one of my first open source contributions that I'm very proud of. <laughs> so maybe getting back to, to working on some of that kind of stuff uh, since I've been finding myself with a bit more time. At Simple Bet, you know, we're kind of coming into our own as a company and gaining some customers. So uh, hopefully you'll see more news from us uh, in the future, but continuing to add sports and markets and improve the product by getting more invested in Elixir and hopefully contributing more to the community as well. Well, if people want to get in touch with you, I don't know if you're hiring and people want to maybe get in touch with the company or they just want to follow what's going on, where should they go to do that? The best place is to follow me on Twitter. My DMs are open, davydog187, throw back to my old middle school handle. <laughs> so you can find me on Twitter there, happy to chat. Uh, we also have a simple bet Twitter handle, SB Engineers. Uh, you can follow us. And um, actually, just in time for this podcast, I stood up my personal website on fly.io. So you can check out davelucia.com to follow my blogs and talks and whatnot. Well, we'll have links to all that in the show notes. Thank you, Dave, for taking the time to meet with us and, and help kind of untangle some of these esoteric terms that we hear a lot like CQRS and CRDTs and, and helping to hear where RabbitMQ was a good fit for you guys and what kind of problems it helped solve. It just helps us when we start to see these same kind of problems in our businesses that we can get a better idea of what tools might be a good thing to reach for. Well, that's all the time we have for today. Thank you for listening. We hope you'll join us next time on Thinking Elixir.